I started a little series on, uh, I started with the Bible. Is the Bible a book of fables or is it the word of God? We did that about three weeks ago. Two weeks ago, is, is America a Christian nation? We found out, man, no doubt about it, that it is. I, I, I've told you, and for those of you that are new, I, I wanted to go on a journey and discover for myself, are the principles that we have as an American culture and nation, do they line up with the word of God? Uh, and we started by, you know, is, are we a nation built on Christianity and the Word of God? I think we answered that very, very well in a couple weeks ago. Last week I started socialism versus capitalism. What does the Bible say about that? And we're in a series, what does the Bible say about dot, dot, dot. Um, last week we kind of went against the grain of culture and society. And many times you're going to find that the Word of God does that. How many of you know that our governing rule of law is always God's word, the Bible, amen? Fortunately, most of what we, uh, most at least initially of what we installed as our governing rule of law as a nation lines up with the word. Now it's changing now, but at least originally it was. Now I'm from the south, a good southern boy that likes guns and trucks and all kinds of hunting and all kinds of good stuff like that. You can imagine I, uh, I'm a capitalist from the word go, but I wanted to discover for myself, is that what the Bible promotes? I want to make sure I'm biblical first and foremost. Last week, I felt like we answered that, but I'm going to go into it a little bit more today and talk about giving and how do we really help the poor. And there's two passages in Acts at the end of this message I'm going to hit that people today will pull out and say, see right there, that's socialism, and I'm going to explain why it's not today. So... I studied these subjects for about probably over 100 hours last year, somewhere in that neighborhood. I put a lot of time in because I wanted to find out for myself. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to continue and teach you what I learned. Is that all right? Would you like to learn? Would you like to see part two of this? Anybody? There's a few of you. I'll go with that. Amen. And I'm gonna, This isn't the only subject I'm going to hit. You know, in coming weeks, I'm going to hit things like... Uh, is life sacred? Is is it? What does the Bible say about abortion? Capital punishment, sexual things. You know, is the Bible cool with homosexuality? I'm going to hit all that stuff. So, uh, we're we're. I know we're on dangerous ground, but we're going to go there because the Bible has an answer. Listen, everything that we will deal with as a culture and society, there's an answer in the Bible. Did you know that? It is a social cultural book for us that's still relevant today. Somebody say a good amen. So having said that, we'll ask you to stand just one more time, and we do this for the honor of God's word, and uh, this is socialism or capitalism part two. If you were here last week, you got a pretty good grasp on it, but I want to continue on with this today. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, and if you've got it, shout out a good amen. 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 Let's do that again. If you've got it, I want you to shout out a good Amen. We on the board behind me. We also have version. You can tune into your version notes. You can download those, save them, and you've got them. All right. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7 through 12. This is New Testament. The New King James Version, it says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. So Paul right here is saying, We're going to give you the church at Thessalonica. We want you to follow us. We're going to give you an example to live by. How many of you like that right off the bat? In other words, they're not trying to tell you to do something they're not living themselves. He says, for we were not disorderly among you. Everybody say disorderly. 
I'm, I'm going to go there because he's going to attach it to something that might surprise you here in a second. Verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Folks, that is as anti-socialistic as you're going to find. We didn't sit home and expect you to feed us. That's what Paul's saying here. Do we still want to hear the word? He says, not because we do not have authority. In other words, spiritually, he said, we could ask for you to feed us. But to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. The example being, go out and work and provide for yourself and your family. That's capitalism, folks. For even when we were with you, this sounds harsh, but this is the Bible. We commanded you. Everybody say commanded. This is not a suggestion. This is not if you think so, but a commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. This is New Testament, folks. For we hear, listen to what Paul says. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. That He's bringing the disorderly manner back again. How does he tie it to? Disorderly manner, not working at all, but our busybodies. So the Bible's telling us that when we're not working and we're not doing as we should, that we're actually disorderly. Now, those who are such, we command again, not suggest, and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Folks, if you want to see a passage that just annihilates the concept of socialism, right there it is in the New Testament. Do we still want to hear the Bible? First yes. Peter 5, 8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith. He has denied his faith in God and is worse than an unbeliever. Folks, those are powerful scriptures right there that tell us and teach us that socialism is not the answer for society or for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. For your word and God, we deliver this because it's your answer. And, and I pray, Father, you teach us today. Teach us about the proper way of giving. Teach us the proper way about how we share according to the book of Acts when we get to the end of this. And I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Speak to us, God. Father God, we're not here to cause a controversy. We're not here to upset the apple cart. But we are here to teach the Bible and what the Bible has to say. Because we want to know how to live our lives and conduct ourselves as children of God. Father, anoint me to speak forth your word, not in word and tongue only, but also in power and in deed. And may the seed fall in the good soil of our hearts and grow and bear forth fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Hold your Bibles up in whatever form you have and let's declare, Father, today, this week, by your grace, I'm going to be a doer of your word and not a hearer only, deceiving my own self. Now, Lord, anoint my ears, anoint my heart, anoint my spirit, my soul, my mind, and my body to receive the truth of your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As you're being seated, tell somebody you're looking great today. <laughs> I have been mentioning to you for several weeks now that uh, they are robbing us as American citizens. They are 
withholding true history from us. They have changed the dictionary. I'm going to, for a little while, I'm going to continue to show you words in our current translation, our current edition of the dictionary, and then take you back to the 1828 original version of the dictionary. Is it okay to see the difference? Does anybody want to see that? Um, I own an 1828 edition. It's not from 1828, but it's one that, it, it's like from 20 years ago, but it was made from the original. But let's look up the definition. Last week we did joy. Let's hit marriage real quick. Everybody want to see what marriage has to say? I want you to see. In Webster's Dictionary, today's edition, marriage is defined as the state of being united as spouses in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. Three things I want you to know that if you go to Webster's Dictionary today, you will not see. One, you will not see a definition as to who is being married. Uh, number two, you will not see for how long they are to be married. And number three, you will not find God anywhere in the definition. goes on to say, the mutual relation of married persons, wedlock, the institution whereby individuals are joined in a marriage, an intimate or close union. So if you pull up Webster's Dictionary today, that's the definition you get. That's the whole definition. Let's go back to 1828 when Noah Webster first started defining words and put our first dictionary out. Webster's Dictionary, 1828 Original Edition, marriage, the act of uniting a man and woman for life. He defines it as man, woman, life. He already answers two questions that today's dictionary will not answer. The legal union, so he does bring legality into it, the legal union of a man and woman, again, for life. Twice he's now saying that. Marriage is a contract, both civil and religious, by which the parties engage to live together in mutual affection and fidelity, that means integrity, till death shall separate them. So he's clearly defining our original dictionary that it's man and woman and it's till death do you part. Now he brings God into the equation. Marriage was instituted by God himself for the purpose of preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes for promoting domestic fidelity and for securing the maintenance and education of children. And then he uses scripture as an example. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, Hebrews chapter 13. I don't know about you, but I think there's a big difference when kids would go to a dictionary in 1828 and when they go to the dictionary today and what they see. Folks, they've changed our dictionary. Evil, godless people have changed our dictionary. Let me go on. Let me give you two more in 1828. Webster's Dictionary, 1828 Original Edition, marriage. Defined as a feast made on the occasion of a marriage. He uses again scripture. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who made a marriage for his son. Matthew chapter 22. One more I'll show you. Webster's Dictionary, 1828 Original Edition, marriage. In a scriptural sense, the union between Christ and his church by the covenant of grace, Revelation 19. Folks, the original dictionary preached. Kids could read the dictionary and get saved back then. What am I saying? Why are you passionate about this, Pastor Dallas? Because I want God back in America again. This was founded on Christian principles and the word of God. 
And I'm bound and determined as long as I have breath to try my very best to bring God back in America again, bring the Bible back in America again, teach our children that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, that His blood washes away our sin, and we can call upon Him. And just like you saw these two precious children get baptized in water, and even the young adults that were, praise God. I'm not, does anybody want God back in America? So point number one of this message is this. We're talking about we've, we've, we've debunked socialism because socialism says everyone go out or a few go out and work and then you just give to people who don't want to. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about disability in a minute, but before we get there, let's go to point number one. Since we know that the Bible promotes capitalism, point number one is this. We are to provide for our families. The free market system of capitalism was a belief held strongly by the founding fathers. Fourth president of the United States, James Madison, who served from 1809 to 1817, said this. I own myself the friend to a very free system of commerce and hold it as a truth that commercial shackles are generally unjust, oppressive, and impolitic. It is also a truth that if industry or hard work and labor are left to take their own course, they will generally be directed to those objects which are the most productive. And this is in a more certain and direct manner than the wisdom of the most enlightened legislature could point out. In other words, President James Madison said, less government interference, greater prosperity. Well, it seems like a simple, good biblical concept to me. Amen? Third President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson who served from 1801 to 1809, an author of the Declaration of Independence, supporter of the Constitution, said this, Agriculture, manufacturers, commerce, and navigation, the four pillars of our prosperity, are the most thriving when left most free to individual enterprise. He also said, Thomas Jefferson, in his inaugural address, A wise and frugal government is one which shall restrain men from injuring one another, don't kill each other, which shall leave them otherwise, watch this, free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. How many would like another sum of good government to come back to the United States again? Point two is this, and I'm going I'm to land here for a little while. We are to be generous. I say generous. Whose responsibility is it to take care of the poor, individuals or government? Now, I'm going to answer this for you. Galatians 2.10, Paul tells us, remember the poor. Leviticus 25 tells us how to help the poor. Let me throw a couple Old, scripture, Old, Old Testament scriptures and a New Testament to you. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8. But if there is any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land, the Lord your God has given you. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous. Everybody shout generous. Be generous and lend them whatever they need. Deuteronomy 15, 10 through 11. Give generously to the poor and not grudgingly. For the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. This is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. In the New Testament, Jesus speaking, Matthew 25, 34 through 40, he says, Then the king will come to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it unto me. I love it. When you give to build a well of water, it's just one of the many things we do as a church, and give children fresh drinking water, and adults, the whole town, the whole village, fresh drinking water, we're doing it as unto Jesus. And you will be blessed for it. The emphasis, though, in the Old and New Testament is on the individual's responsibility to take care of the poor, not the government's. So, what is the government's role in taking care of the poor? Because I want to make sure that I teach us, I want us to know what is the role. Again, I studied this a lot last year. Are there explicit commands given to government? No, there's a few I'm going to point out. Leviticus 19.15, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Hmm. Don't give special rules to the elite and the rich and push down and step on the poor. Sounds like a good scripture for the United States of America right now. Proverbs 29.14, if a king judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. So what is government's role? Government is charged to provide justice to the poor and maintain their rights. But government, listen, is not anywhere in the scriptures charged with meeting the poor's material needs. To make government responsible for helping the poor is in direct opposition, listen, to God and his word. Are you still with me today? Statistics prove this. I'm about to blow your mind. The American Institute of Philanthropy, AIP, says, and this, this is appalling to me, but this is what they say. In order to help donors maximize the effect of their charitable giving, the AIP rates various charities by calculating the percentage of donated income that actually makes it through to the intended target. In other words, if you give a dollar, how much of that dollar actually gets where it's going? Before I answer the rest of this, let me just tell you. When you put every dime you put in to go build a well, that's 100% where that money goes. 100%. You give money to build a house in Honduras, 100% goes to that. You give money to feed the poor, 100% goes to that. That's the way we operate as a church. Somebody say amen. But according to the AIP, a charity's effectiveness is acceptable if 60% of what it collects reaches its intended charitable mission. That means they say, you know what, it's okay if only 60 cents out of a dollar actually makes it there. Well, my question is, where's the other 40 cents going? Donors should avoid contributing to organizations where less than 60% of contributed funds reach their designated target. Okay, here we go. You ready for me? I'm going against the current here, but I'm, I'm going to go there. Listen. Many people say, well, you know, the government does a good job of feeding the poor. They, the government has all these programs, the government this, the government that. So what percentage of every dollar collected by the U.S. government 
for the poor actually reaches them. A dismal 30%. 30% of your tax dollars that are geared and earmarked for the poor make it to them. 70%, where's it going? Politicians' pockets. I'll just say it like it is. The U.S. government is quite possibly the nation's and the world's most inefficient mechanism for meeting the needs of the poor. No reasonable donor in their right mind would say, I'm kind of happy giving a dollar and only 30% actually putting food on their table. However, many today continue to encourage increased government spending to quote-unquote fight poverty. Why? Just to see 70 cents out of every dollar wasted? Are you kidding me? Biblically, taking care of the poor is done by individuals, by churches, and by charities. Not the government. Somebody say a good amen. amen. Thomas Jefferson, again, 1801 to 1809, said, I deem it the duty of every man to devote a certain portion of his income for charitable purposes, and that it is his further duty to see it so applied as to do the most good of which it is capable. This, I believe, to be the best ensured by keeping with the circle of his own inquiry and information the subjects of distress to whose relief his contributions shall be applied. Notice that Thomas Jefferson said the best way to take care of the poor is those closest to the poor. The family members, the friends, the people in the church, those are the best ones that need to take care of that. Does that sound like a Bible thing to you? I think it sounds very biblical to me. Thomas Jefferson's wife died in 1782. So he was sent to France as a diplomat in 1786, which is why he never signed the Constitution. He was in France. His wife was dead. He met a young lady by the name of Maria Cosway. They courted both in America and France for a long time until Jefferson decided she was not to be his wife. The question is why? Thomas Jefferson would see some poor person and wanted to help, and Cosway would always give some reason why it was a bad idea. Don't give, don't give, don't give. He initially listened to her, but then he wrote a letter telling her why he disagreed. Here's what he wrote. I love this. A desire to do what is right has sometimes induced me to conform to your counsels. A few facts, however, which I can readily recall to your memory, will suffice to prove to you that nature has not organized you for our moral direction. In other words, I'm going one way with the heart of God, and you're not. When the poor, wearied soldier whom we overtook at Chickahominy, with his pack on his back, begged us to let him get behind our chariot or our carriage, you began to calculate that the road was full of soldiers and that if all should be taken up, our horses would fail in their journey. We drove on, therefore, but soon becoming sensible, you had made me do wrong. That though we cannot relieve all the distress, we should relieve as many as we can. I turned about to take up the soldier, but he had entered a bypath and was no more to be found. And from that moment to this, I could never find him out to ask his forgiveness. Again, when the poor woman came to ask a charity in Philadelphia, you whispered that she looked like a drunkard and that half a dollar was enough to give her for the alehouse. Those who want the dispositions, who lack the resolve to give, easily find reasons why they ought not give. When I sought out her afterwards and did what I should have done at first, you know that she employed the money immediately toward placing her child at school. If our country, when pressed with wrongs to the point of the bayonet, has been government, had been governed by its heads instead of its hearts, where should we have been now? Hanging on the gallows as high as Haman's, Esther 7 and 10. 
Thomas Jefferson said, hey, we've got to give. And you know what the Bible says? We need to give. Why does the Bible tell us to give so often? Because giving makes us more like God, Christ-like. Did you know there are over 850 scriptures in the Bible that talk about love, or talk about, excuse me, giving money or possessions? One out of six verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with the money and possessions. 16 of the 29 parables that Jesus spoke of talk about a person's money and their possessions. So why does God talk so much? He taught, Jesus taught more on, on money and possessions than he did love and salvation. That's massive to me. Wow. Why did he do it? Because giving makes us like God. If you want to know where your priorities are, you want me to show you where your priorities are. Show me your checkbook and show me your calendar. Because what's really a priority in life will be indicated by your money and by what you do with your time. I don't know about you, but I want mine to show God is the priority in both those categories. Can somebody say a good amen? And Thomas Jefferson wasn't the only one in the beginning that had such a heart for giving. George Washington, when he was called away from Mount Vernon to serve as commander-in-chief in the Continental Army during the American Revolution, directed his business manager of his home and his estate and all of his business with these words. Let the hospitality of the house with respect to the poor be kept up. Let no one go hungry away. If any of this kind of people should be in want of corn, supply their necessities. Watch this, though. Provided it does not encourage them in idleness. And I have no objection to your giving my money in charity. What I mean by having no objection is that it is my desire that it should be done. He also said, let your heart feel for the affliction and distresses of everyone. Let your hand given proportion to your purse. Remember always the estimation of the widow's might. And he quotes scripture, Luke 21, 2 through 3. He also said, never let an indigent, uh, indigent person ask without receiving something. If you have the means, always recollecting in what light the widow's might was viewed. Folks, it wasn't just founding fathers. It's not just the Bible, but it's teaching us we should be givers. Somebody say amen. The happiest people you will find anywhere are the ones that are giving for the kingdom of God and causes that will get the gospel out to hopefully see people saved. Benjamin Franklin, another one they want to call a deist, said this, Sometime or other, you may have an opportunity of assisting with an equal sum a stranger who has equal need of it. Do so. By that means, you will discharge any obligation you may suppose yourself under me and join him to do the same on occasion. By pursuing such a practice, much good may be done with little money, mankind, or all of a family. What about the issue of idleness and promoting the poor to be lazy and idle? Because that's what I hear. Pastor, if we keep giving to the poor, we're going to promote idleness. We're going to promote laziness. We're going to promote this stuff. And is that what the Bible's telling us to do? Just let people who can work, I'm not talking about disabled people, but if people have the means to work, let's just let them hang out, let them get into the poor category, and we'll just fund their laziness. Is that what the Bible's saying? Absolutely not. Our helping people is not so they can live off of us or the system. But do the poor and needy play a role? Well, let's look how God designed it. How many want to see what the Bible says? Again, I know this is going against the current of society, but how many want to know what the Bible says? Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 21. I want to show you a thread in a couple of these things here. 
When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, those that were poor, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien and the orphan and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. So they would go out and get the grape harvest, and grapes would fall down in the floor. They'd miss some on the vine. And what God said was, here's what you do. You go through once and you get it. Whatever's left, you leave for the poor to have it. When you go out, and it's the same thing with Ruth. When you go out and you get your barley harvest, there's going to be some left behind. Don't go back and get it. Leave it for the poor. Exodus 23, 11 says, But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and, it sh- and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So watch this. God had explicit instructions that the poor would be allowed and have the opportunity to be able to get what they needed from the fields and so forth. But I want to make a very important point. God made opportunity for the poor, but work was always commanded in exchange. In other words, if the poor wanted to go eat, they had to go reap the corners of the harvest. If they wanted some grapes, they had to go into the field and the vineyard and pick the grapes that were on the ground or those left on the vine and take them home. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you go out and you pick it all and then you knock on their door and hand deliver it and feed them the rest of their life. The poor had to work for themselves. Is this okay? Is this the Bible? Y'all looking at me like I'm preaching the Koran. I promise it's the Bible. What about disabled people who truly are unable to work? Well, they were taken care of, obviously. They can't work. But they're supposed to be taken care of, watch this, by those closest to them, starting with their families. Their family and those that were closest in their life. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us that. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained in the world. So what about this whole notion of widows and orphans and so forth? 1 Timothy defines it for us. 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 13. Watch this. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Then it goes on to define what a widow really is. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice. The New Testament says it's time, if if you're a child, if you have an aging widow, a real widow, and they need help, He's saying, if you want to be a Christian, then you need to act like it and put it in practice and take care of them. These should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. If you have aging widow, mother in your life, and she cannot, she's at an age where she can't work, or parent, and they need help, As a Christian, a believer of God, as a citizen of heaven, as an ambassador for Christ, God says we're supposed to help them. Is this the Bible? Man, y'all looking at me like I've gone crazy today. I told you I'm going against the current. We're supposed to take care of our parents. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray 
and to ask God for help. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds or work, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting himself, herself excuse me, to all kinds of good deeds or works. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things that they ought not to. I'm telling you, have you ever seen... Some of the things people say and do on social media, it's like, you really need to get a job. You got way too much time on your hands. How many knows what I'm talking about? Is it still all right to preach the truth? We are supposed to help, but we are supposed to inspire the poor to work for themselves. It's the old adage. If you're hungry and I give you a fish, you eat for today. But if I teach you how to fish, what? You eat for a lifetime. That's what the Bible promotes. As a matter of fact, Benjamin Franklin, I love this, was in London. And I'm just going to blow your mind with this because it sounds like the United States of America. He was in London as a diplomat and he wrote a newspaper article criticizing the practice of providing for the poor by taxing citizens. Both directly taxing their incomes and also indirectly taxing commodities sold and bought by them. And here's what he said. I am doing good to the poor, but I differ in opinion of the means. He's writing this to England at the time. I think the best way of doing good to the poor is not making them easy in poverty, but leading or driving them out of it. In my youth, I traveled much and I observed in different countries that the more public provisions were made for the poor, the less they provided for themselves and, of course, became poorer. And on the contrary, the less was done for them, the more they did for themselves and became richer. This is comical to me. England, 1700s. There is no country in the world where so many provisions are established for them, so many hospitals to receive them when they are sick or lame, founded or maintained by volunteer charities, so many almshouses for the aged of both sexes, together with a solemn general law made by the rich to subject their estates to a heavy tax for the support of the poor. Under all these obligations, are our poor, modest, humble, and thankful? And do they use their best endeavors to maintain themselves and lighten our shoulders of this burden? On the contrary, Benjamin Franklin writes, I affirm that there is no country in the world in which the poor are more idle, dissolute, drunken, and insolent. The day you passed that act, you took away from before their eyes the greatest of all inducements to industry, which is hard work, frugality and sobriety. In short, you offered a premium for the encouragement of idleness and you should not now wonder that it has had its effect in the increase of poverty. He says, repeal that law and you will soon see a change in their manners. St. Monday and St. Tuesday will cease to be holidays. Six days thou shalt labor, Exodus 20 and 9. The one old, the old commandments long treated as out of date will again be looked upon as respectable precept. 
industry or hard work will increase. And with it, plenty among the lower people. Their circumstances will mend. And more will be done for their happiness by injuring or enabling them to provide for themselves than could be done by dividing all your estates among them. Wow. Benjamin Franklin may have been in 2020 and saw the United States of America when he wrote this. Folks, the answer biblically is we are supposed to give, but we're supposed to promote for people to get out and work for themselves. Is that still good, solid teaching? Thomas Jefferson said an industrious farmer occupies a more dignified place in the scale of beings, whether moral or political, than a lazy lounger, valuing himself of his family, too proud to work, and drawing out a miserable existence by eating on the surplus of other men's labor. Point three, here we go. The Bible promotes capitalism. Let me get into these two passages in closing. Despite the Bible clearly promoting capitalism, shunning socialism, some point out two scriptures in Acts that say, see right there, Pastor, it promotes socialism. What are you going to do with these passages? Let me define them and explain them. Here's one passage. Acts 2, 44 through 45. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. See, right there, pastor, socialism. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with awe as anyone might have need. Then they'll point out Acts 4, 32 through 35. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as he had need. On the surface, these two look and boy, they, right there it is. Socialism, socialism, socialism. Let me tell you why they're not. Socialism is the government telling you that you have to. In the book of Acts, these people voluntarily sold their possessions and gave. Voluntarily. It wasn't written into Israeli law. The governor or the king didn't come and say, you have to do this. And I can prove that it was theirs with another passage in Acts. Acts 5, 1 through 4. Are you ready? Somebody say, I'm ready and I'm, I'm almost done. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself and his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, the money was yours. Why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart and you have lied not to men but to God? Okay. Were the apostles so mad at Ananias and Sapphira that they shunned socialism that they were just going to pray God's wrath on them and let them die? Definitely not. Peter affirmed the property was yours. He again endorsed, was it not your property? Remember, socialism says you can't have private property. Capitalism says you can. The Bible says you can. Peter right here in Acts 5 is saying, was the property not yours? It belonged to you. It's your own personal property. He even said, when you sold it, the money you made off it was yours. It didn't belong anywhere else. They did not have to contribute any amount. Whatever amount they did, it was up to them. 
Under socialism, it would have never been their choice. It would have been demanded. Every penny comes to us. We're giving to everybody else. You're out. But Simon Peter said, even when you sold your own property, all the money you had belonged to you. You could do whatever you wanted with it. So what was the problem? They didn't get into trouble because they didn't participate in socialism, but rather they tried to lie to God. They tried to take advantage of the system. How? They wanted to enjoy having their needs provided for them by the group, while at the same time dishonestly misrepresenting their need and their means. Listen, owning private property and operating private enterprise was never the problem with Ananias and Sapphira. It was they tried to lie to God and cheat the system. God endorses us owning property. He endorses us having things. As a matter of fact, Paul writes one time and he says, hey, command the rich not to trust in their wealth. He didn't say command the rich to go give it all away. He said, don't put your trust in it. Furthermore, notice this. It was individuals and the church who were taking care of the needy, not the government. But there was no coercion involved. It was all voluntary. Listen, the Bible absolutely promotes capitalism. It promotes giving. But it tells us that we are to give with the giving and aim to help the poor get jobs and help begin to provide for themselves, not to live off the system till the day they die. Is this okay today? Does anybody believe the Bible anymore? Yeah. So my question is this. Having said all that, what are we going to do with the Bible now? Because I know this is going against the current. And there are people out there that say we need to give more money to the government so they can do more for at 30% of every dollar. Get it? No. We need to be giving the right way and doing for individual. It's an individual thing, not a government thing. And the Bible clearly, unequivocally pronounces and, and, and teaches us that the economic system of a nation should be based on capitalism and free enterprise, not socialism. Is that okay anymore? Does anybody want to hear what the Bible says? God wants to take this. Woke up Tuesday morning. I was very troubled inside. I don't know. I just tackled the devil, I guess. And I, I had people texting me, hey, I'm praying for you. And I don't know. The devil just got in my head. I thought, my God, what's going to happen? Why is everybody texting me and praying for me? Because the history is when people I haven't talked to in a long time start texting me and telling me, are you all right? I'm praying for you. It's usually because something's going to get ready to happen. And I guess God's cutting it off the path. So then I started thinking, why is all these people praying for me? What's going on? And then one of them told me about a dream they had, and things seemed to line up. And I, I'm telling you, by Tuesday at lunchtime, I was convinced that I was going to die. I'm telling you, I was messed up Tuesday. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die. The devil's going to kill me. I was messed up. I got home. I said, Holly, I got to talk to you. She said, what? I started telling man, listen, it sure seems to line up. And what's going on here? Uh, is the devil going to try to kill me? I, know what's, uh, I thought I had 70 years. The Bible says I get at least 70 years. I'm only 46. I got 24 more. Why is people praying? I'm going to die. 
I mean, I, I did. I was, it was a mess. I said, I got to get this out in the light. Listen, what you keep in the dark, the devil, that's his domain. But what you bring in the light, it allows God to come. It's like cockroaches. You turn the lights on, the cockroaches scatter. Same thing spiritually. And the devil kept beating me up about, you're going to die, you're going to die. So I talked to Holly, man. We, she, she started getting, she said, whoa, Dallas. She said, that ain't what the Bible says. I said, I know what the Bible says, but man, this thing has gripped me. It was like a spirit of fear, and I don't ever deal with fear. It was like fear hit me, and I thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die next month. I'm not even going to live. I want to raise my kids. I want to see my grandkids. God, I thought, we got, we, you told me the other day, we got our Rehoboth land coming. We got our place you're going to put us, and we're going to be fruitful. What do you mean? And so Holly's telling me, hey, what about our land? God ain't going to give us our land and lead us to the wilderness and kill you out. The... No, that ain't the way God works. You know, and, I'm, and I'm sitting there, and I'm tearing up, and she's crying. And we're at the dinner table, and I, and I think, well, yeah, you're right. She says, the Bible says you get 70 years. When it, when, look at all these scriptures. And the passage I read that day in the, in the, in the uh, Bible reading was Psalm 27. And it talked about how God would preserve us and protect us. And I told Holly, and we prayed, and I felt much better. And thought, man, yeah, the devil tried to lie to me. And I thought, that's so weird. I don't think I've ever had an attack like that. It's, you can come in different ways. I thought, God, what's going on? And then it hit me this week, later this week. Sometimes the Lord during the week deals with me on something that you're dealing with. I don't know who you are. There's somebody in here, and the devil's tried to tell you he's going to kill you, that you're going to die. And I want to tell you, don't listen to the devil. He's a liar. If you have fear like that, I mean, that was an irrational fear in my life. I, mean, I, was, I was embarrassed to even tell Holly. I was like ashamed to tell her. That's what the devil does. Tries to make you feel shame like you've done something wrong. Wait a minute, you're lying to me and now you're going to make me feel about it and try to hold it? You lying devil. There's two groups of people I feel like I'm supposed to pray for right now. Look, I just laid it all out there. One is the devil's trying to make you feel shame over something. And the second one is there is some kind of spirit of fear that has gripped you. I mean gripped you in some irrational way. And I feel like the Lord wants to set you free right now. I'm going to ask you to do something very courageous if that's you. So it took courage for me to share you. My kids don't even know this. They're probably thinking, oh my God, Dad fell off the wagon today. He thinks he's going to die. I did. You can ask Holly. I, I mean, we had a serious conversation about it. If you're under one of those two things and you say, Pastor, I need to get this out in the light. Your way of getting out of the light, I'm just going to ask you to stand. Because we're going to pray for you right where you're at. Stand up. You've got some kind of spirit of fear that has gripped you. Or secondly, you feel shame over something that your kid has done. Father, in the name of Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, I rebuke the spirit of fear, God, for you have not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of sound mind. Lord, I thank you that we get at least 70 years on this earth. I thank you that we shall live and not die, proclaims the Lord, Psalm 118. In the name of Jesus, we rebuke shame back to hell where it came from. We nail it to the cross of Jesus Christ. I, de I declare and I decree, be free in Jesus' name from any and all shame of what you've done or what you haven't done or what somebody else in your life has done. Be free and loose from shame. Be free 
free and loose from fear. For God has given us not the spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. Glory, 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 glory. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. If you're in here and you say, I don't even know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to give my heart to Him. I want you to slip your hand in there. I want to pray for you right now. Is there anybody say, that's me. I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to be saved. I need help. Lord, we bless you, we bless you, we bless you.